Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Peter Spiegel. We have a great show lined up for you today, and I want to remind you, make sure to visit us on Facebook and join the discussion there. Advancing the Interests of Animals is the group behind Animals Today. Visit them at aianimals.org and listen to and subscribe on iTunes. The huge news out of California is that Governor Jerry Brown has signed into law a bill that's really groundbreaking at the state level. Formerly known as AB 485, the Pet Rescue and Adoption Act aims to end inhumane treatment of dogs in puppy mills and to reduce euthanasia in shelters. I'm pleased to welcome Judy Mancuso, founder and president of Social Compassion in Legislation, Skill, which was so instrumental in getting the bill drafted, adopted, and signed. Welcome, Judy. Thank you so much. Judy, explain the problem that this bill was crafted to address. Well, in the state of California, we bring in, we know for sure, over 800,000 dogs and cats into our municipal shelters, and we euthanize, kill over half. So that's a good 400,000 to 500,000 dogs and cats that go to landfill, Uh, or rendering plants every year. And this costs taxpayers money. It's morally and ethically wrong. You've got the workers in the shelters that are faced with having to do this job. And so there are certain things that we can do to solve this problem, right? It's not like it's impossible. It just, we need to change the paradigm. And in changing the paradigm, you need to decrease the amount of births that are happening, these unwanted litters. You need to be able to get dogs and cats back to their owners. So it's spay and neuter, it's microchipping, and it's adoption, and eliminating this excess of overbreeding and animals being brought in from other states from these cruel, inhumane puppy mills. And that's what AB 485 addresses. It stops the flow into California from these high-volume commercial breeders for dogs, cats, and rabbits, and mandates that the pet stores offer shelter animals uh, and, uh, from a shelter or from a rescue group. Judy, how will the law operate? What are the provisions? Well, the pet stores, you know, obviously the ones carrying the puppy mill animals complained a lot about not being able to carry puppy mill animals. So they wanted a delayed implementation of one year. Well, they they wanted to kill the bill, but when they saw that wasn't going to happen, we had six months transition period in the bill and uh, the Senate Business and Professions Committee wanted us to change it to one year. And we thought that was a small price to pay to kick puppy mills out of the state. Uh, So we said, absolutely, that's fine. So we took that amendment, and now it goes, the bill goes into law January 2018, the clock starts ticking, and then the stores have to be transitioned by January 2019. The enforcement mechanism is the local jurisdictions. You have to get a permit from your local jurisdiction to carry animals in your pet store. 
So every year when it's time to renew, that triggers an inspection and you have to pay, renew your license, and someone comes out from animal control to inspect your facility. So at that time, they'll look at the cage cards, they'll look at the animals, and obviously if they're Midwestern puppy mill puppies, you know, then they're going to write the pet shop a ticket. They give them the time to make it right and stop doing it and start working with a shelter or just stop selling the animals and just do products and services. And there'll be like three occurrences that they could give them a ticket and it escalates in, you know, the price of that ticket. And then if they don't abide by, uh, you know, after that third strike, then they would revoke their permit and they wouldn't be able to sell animals anymore. So it's not punitive. It's uh, done with citations and working with the store. And this is how it's been in the local jurisdictions that have passed uh, these laws already. We have 36 in the state, and it works perfectly. How do you know this type of legislation will decrease the cruelty of puppy mills and reduce the euthanasia of healthy dogs? Well, when you have, I have one store owner, his name is Andrew Kim, with a uh, store called Healthy Spot in Los Angeles. And Andrew started with one store in 2009 where he worked with the city of Los Angeles. He has a shelter liaison that brings in the animals to his store, takes them home at night. And he started doing adoptions with his one store. Now, all these years later, he has 12 stores and 225 employees, and last year he told us he adopted out 600 animals. So those 600 animals that Andrew's store adopted out would have probably been euthanized and not had a chance uh, because they have to well, they don't have to, but they do because this is the way things are. They put them down to make space for the ones coming through the door because they don't have enough cage space to keep them all. So if you don't have a way to get those animals out, and if there's not someone standing there to adopt one, then they put them down. But this gives that outlet now. They are able to give just Andrew's store, just one store we're talking about. He has 12 stores that they can push these dogs, cats, and rabbits out to, and they can find their forever homes. And people love this as well in the community because a lot of people don't want to go into a shelter. Right. They just they don't want to go. And if they, these animals are in this environment where they're cleaned up, they're, you know, healthy, they've gone through fostering, and they're ready to be adopted, and it's in your neighborhood that you can go by and see them and hang out with them. You know, it's just, it's good for everybody. The Pet Industry Joint Advisory Council and the AKC both strongly oppose this legislation. Would you summarize their claims and address them here? Well, first I'd like to summarize what they what their problems really are, and then I can tell you what they say their problems okay. are. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So what they say their problem, uh, what their real problem is, is that they make money off of puppies 
because the AKC, with every puppy that's born and registered, they get a registration fee. The top executives at the AKC make over a quarter of a million dollars a year. It doesn't behoove them as an organization for there to be less animals being born uh, because that means less money coming in for registrations. Now, they don't care once they go into the channel that they end up in the shelter being put down because they already got their money. Right. Right? They got it when they were born and they're little and you register them and it's supposed to be meaningful. But later on, you know, they have puppies. Those puppies go to the shelter. They don't keep them. Somebody doesn't keep them. They relinquish them and they get put down. Uh, So it is directly impacting their cash flow. And the Pet Industry Joint Animal Council is the lobby arm for... The puppy mills and there's one store called Petland and there's a lot of others and there's many of the small uh, uh, smaller stores that are not big a chain that are all members of PJAC is their acronym and so they work for uh, these folks who are breeding the animals and selling them so it's money it's just a commodity and it's money, and that's all it boils down to, to what their real problem is. Now, what they say their problem is, because they can't just come out and say that, they said, the one thing they said was, oh, you're limiting people's choice. Well, no, we're not. Number one, you can get a purebred rescue, because there's about 25 to 30% of the animals in shelters are purebreds. Uh, or you can find a breeder in your area that has the kind of animal you want and go see for yourself. Where is the animal being raised? What are the, what do the parents look like? You know, it's not, we're not stopping people from breeding animals, but we are stopping the inflow of high volume commercially bred dogs, cats, and rabbits from being sold in pet stores. So the, the breeders who feel that they love their animals, they care about the breed, they want them to carry on in good health, they have a code of ethics on their website that says, we would never sell to a pet store. Now why they wouldn't is because it goes back to that commodity. It's not a purse, it's not a belt, uh, it's not a keychain. it's a life and so a, a good breeder wants an application filled out. Are you going to keep this dog? If there's any problems, it can come back to us. They have spay and neuter agreements. It's a whole other ball game. Judy, which legislators should we thank? Uh, Assemblymember Patrick O'Donnell from Long Beach is the primary author. And then secondary is uh, Assemblymember Matt DeBobne from Woodland Hills. And then we had several bipartisan uh, co-authors as well that came on board. And, you know, there has been attempts in the Midwest to regulate puppy mills, and it just hasn't worked. They've been repealed. They have big ag on their side. It's not going to happen. So the only way to do away with this cruel industry is if we cut off the demand. So the hope is that this bill, AB 485, 
will go across the coast, coast to coast, and that's how we put an end and just have this in the history books of what a puppy mill at one time was and get it out of our society. Judy Mancuso, congratulations. Thank you. She's the founder and president of Social Compassion in Legislation, SCILR Skill. Thanks so much. Thank you. More with animals today after the break. I've asked Dr. Robert Reed to rejoin us to talk about overweight and obese dogs and cats, other animals if he cares to. And, you know, recently our dog Cosmo, Cosmo's a mixed breed about 55 pounds or so. He needed his knee surgery performed. And while he was recovering, he did put on a few pounds, maybe maybe three or four pounds by my estimate. And uh, once he was released to go back to uh, intermediate and then full activity, uh, we did find it was it was pretty easy to get the weight off. We did cut back the portion size a little bit and then just ramped up the activity. And it wasn't really a, a big problem for him. But obese and overweight dogs and cats is a huge problem. Robert, welcome back. Isn't it a big problem? Oh, hey, Peter. Oh, yeah, it's probably the biggest health problem we face on a daily basis, certainly in the number of animals affected. Probably half the cats in the U.S. and maybe 40% or more of the dogs uh, would be categorized as either overweight or obese. And I see that statistic also, and often obese and overweight are grouped together. Is it that bad to be, say, a little overweight? Technically, a pet uh, is categorized as obese if they are more than 20% above their ideal body weight and overweight if they're between 10 and 20% above ideal body weight. And that, you know, that leaves a lot of leeway in the lower range uh, of pets who are overweight. So there are some pets, I think, who uh, at certain points in their lives can be a little overweight and not have significant detrimental effect. But when you, you know, reach those higher ranges of overweight and, and into the obese range, it, it starts to have a significant detrimental effect on pets' lives. Yeah. How does a guardian uh, judge if their dog or cat is overweight? I see in some of the vet offices there's this diagram that uh, shows outline of the animals. Well, it's a good question. It, it, it is something that you should be able to do at home. Obviously, uh, you can have your veterinarian help you with it. But the simplest way that I, uh, that I evaluate a pet when I'm feeling them is to check the, uh, the thickness over the ribs. They should have a little bit of padding over the ribs, but you should be able to feel the ribs. And there should be a little bit of a tuck-in of the belly right in front of the, the back legs. But you mentioned those uh, charts that you may have seen at the vet office. That those are body, body conditioning or body condition scoring guidelines. And they're actually pictures or diagrams that can help you evaluate, you know, what the appropriate girth of your pet is to give you an idea of how much overweight they are. And I've got a, a, a website for an organization that gives you that information if you'd like it. Yeah, sure. This is a website for the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention, and it's petobesityprevention.org. So what are the consequences of being obese if you're a dog or a cat, and you can split those out as appropriate? Sure. Yeah. Well, they're, they're pretty much the same, but there's just one, one little variation I'll, I'll go over. But essentially, you know, there's a number of, of conditions that have increased risk, or at least the symptoms are made worse by obesity. 
arthritis, obviously, um, if a dog or cat has difficulty getting around, it's going to be made worse uh, with their, if they have to carry more weight. But also heart disease, diabetes, uh, difficulty with breathing, kidney disease, and this one's particularly true of cats, uh, liver disease. And one of the most important consequences is that they have shorter lives. There have been some pretty clear studies that suggest that just being overweight can uh, shed and shorten a pet's life. For both dogs and cats? Yeah. When you see a cat with that skin hanging down from its abdomen, is that fat that's, that you see there? Yeah, it's uh, subcutaneous fat or fat underneath the skin. Some cats are more, more prone to depositing fat in that area of the body than others. It isn't necessarily an indication of a worse problem than a cat that's more generally obese or who carries that extra fat within the abdomen. It may be more noticeable, but it's still just a, a cat who has a weight problem. So what is causing this epidemic? Probably a, a number of things. I can give you a short list of the reasons that I see most okay. often, yeah. if you don't mind. Yeah. You know, the first one is probably too many treats. Okay. Um, right up there with it is allowing unlimited access to food or free feeding. Um, many people follow the package guidelines on, on the, the food without considering the actual activity level of the pet, so they feed more than they need. Uh, some people believe they're using an appropriate measure but are, are not, um, not using an actual measuring cup, so they may be overfeeding without realizing it. Um, small kids in the house can be a big issue because they can feed the pets or drop food that make it difficult to control. There are a few individuals who have hormonal abnormalities. Having access to other pets' food can be an issue, especially dogs eating cat food. And then one that's sometimes overlooked is spaying and neutering, mm -hmm. which, of course, we, we recognize as an overall public good and something that we should promote. It is something that in some individuals can reduce their metabolic rate, change their interest in food and activity, it might actually require a reduction in their calorie intake to keep them from getting overweight. Okay, so it's determined that your dog or cat is overweight. How do you approach this? What should a guardian do? Well, uh, it basically comes down to, you know, uh, energy intake versus energy expenditure, how much they eat versus how much they exercise. But there is a simple basic approach to managing calorie intake if we assume a certain level of exercise. The first thing, of course, I would do is make sure your pet's health, overall health, is good and that there's no underlying illness contributing to the condition and that they're capable of sustaining a reasonable amount of exercise. And the next thing is to know what your pet's current weight is and what their target weight should be. Then know how many calories your pet's getting at this point in time so that you'll know where to start from. Um, then establish the number of calories you believe it should have and feed the volume of food that meets that calorie need. Um, some diets may be available to make that easier. I mean, you can certainly buy prescription diets for weight loss through veterinarians, but basically you want to know what calories are in the food and how much of that you should feed. And then finally track the progress with weight loss through regular weighings keeping in mind that, you know, a dog in good health should probably lose maybe 2 to 3% of the body weight per month, uh, a little bit less than a cat. Um, that comes out to, say, in a 15-pound cat, losing about a half a pound per month. And in a 50-pound dog, probably about 2 pounds per month. 
it's really more important than cats that you track the rate of weight loss because you really don't want to induce too rapid a weight loss in a I cat. See. It should be gradual and steady. Uh, but generally, it's a little bit over time, and you track that by actually weighing the pet to make sure you're getting the right amount because you can adjust the calories that you provide based on the rate the weight loss is proceeding. Well, it all makes sense, but I see a lot of pitfalls in that it requires a sustained effort. It requires discipline, measuring, and uh, sort of shielding yourself from some of the emotions that may be floating around there. But I guess you got to do it. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, a lot of it is just uh, we want to make our pets happy. They respond well to food. We have to get beyond that uh, indulgence and then focus on what is a simple issue. It just takes a commitment uh, to getting it accomplished. Robert Reed, Medical Director of VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital. Thank you very much. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. back to the show. If you haven't subscribed on iTunes, please go there so you can listen to Animals Today anytime, anywhere. You know, manatees are in the news and, you know, I've never seen a manatee in person. Somehow I feel connected to them, however, and I really would look forward to the time when I can get real close to them. What do you know about manatees? Well, fortunately, to discuss what's going on with them in the news and talk about them, about manatees overall, we are pleased to welcome aquatic biologist and executive director of Save the Manatee Club, Pat Rose. Hey, Pat. Hi, good to be here. Pat, let's start this way. What is a manatee? Well, a manatee is a large marine mammal, and they're, they're a little bit hard to describe, but they're upwards to... 3,500 pounds at their largest, and certainly as a mammal, breathe air and have live young. They are a semi-tropical species, though, and so they also need to stay warm in the wintertime. Unlike cetaceans and other marine mammals, they actually do need warm water in the wintertime, and that's why they're sort of concentrated in Florida Mm -hmm. and um, have to stay warm there and can be a serious problem for them. But they reach lengths up to about 10 feet long, and they're vegetarian. Yeah. Who are they related to? Well, they're in their own order, Sirenia, and so they have, there's two other species of manatees and then the dugong, and that's all that are left in the, the order. There was a fourth, and that was a stellar sea cow, but it was extirpated in about 25 years after its discovery. Every last one was killed. What's the range of manatees? Where are they found worldwide? Worldwide, you would have the West, what's called the West Indian manatee, which the Florida manatee is a subspecies, and they would be throughout the Caribbean on the coastal, the uh, east coast, the southeast coast of Florida. They would go through the Gulf of Mexico, those coastal waters southward to about Recife, which is in, in northern South America. 
And then you have the West African manatee, which, as it's described, is off the west coast of Africa. And then the third species is the Amazonian manatee. And then that's in the Amazon Orinoco regions of uh, South America. Pat, how can people get up close to manatees without disturbing them? We like to suggest that people come, especially in the wintertime when manatees are coming to our natural springs to stay warm, like at Blue Springs State Park or Homosassa Springs State Park, other places where there are actually boardwalks all along the, the parkways and people can, can see them really well without disturbing them from the water. Places like Homosassa, they can come and see them and walk underwater in a viewing platform without, again, without disturbing them. There are a few, quite, I guess, a number of manatees in facilities now that work with us in partnership on rehabilitation. And while those animals are still being taken care of, they could go to a few of the zoos that have them. No manatees are kept in captivity just to keep them and to display them. Any manatee that is in a facility is really there as part of its care and with the ultimate goal to get them returned to the wild. Well, I'm really, like I said, I'm really enchanted with them, even though I've never seen one. I need to get down. What month should I come down to Florida to check them out? If you want to see them in their natural habitat, this in the winter is the best time. So uh, late December, January, and most of February would be sort of the ideal times. But we can kind of probably hook you up someplace in Florida, no matter what time you might okay. come. Well, I'll give you a call. What's the conservation status of manatees? What are their threats? The manatees' primary threat, threats, and maybe I should go back. Originally, they were hunted to near extinction, uh, and fortunately, that hunting was pretty much eliminated for the most part, at least in the United States, by the time of sort of the end of, well, really about the end of World War II. Hmm. And from that time forward, they'd been in, the habitat was still in good shape, and they had been doing better. Now, those threats and risk have been replaced, number one, by boating accidents, where they're hit and injured and killed by boat collisions. Uh, in addition to that, cold weather is quite a serious concern. We had more than 300 manatees die in 2010 just from severe cold. Mm. Uh, in addition to that, we now are having exacerbated problems with red tide. And uh, for the example, we had another really bad year in 2013 where more than 300 animals died from red tide exposure. There's a brevitoxin produced by those dinoflagellates that can be very toxic to, of course, manatees and many other species as well. Uh, in addition to that, threats to their habitat uh, in terms of the springs, whether they're going to continue to flow and be there for the winter for them, and just, you know, a number of other usual things that happen. Disease does occur, but it's not been a large determinant in terms of killing a lot of manatees, although we've had in the last year or so some unusual mortality events in our East Coast that we don't yet really know why they're dying. So what's happening regarding their conservation status? That's the item in the news we need to talk about. Yes. I've been working for more than 40 years with manatees with the goal to see them go from endangered status under the Endangered Species Act to hopefully reclassification to threatened. And then ultimately, we'd love to see them uh, delisted altogether. Unfortunately, that process is kind of moving ahead of where their biological safety is, if you will. There's a proposal that was just put out by the United States Fish and Wildlife Service to reclassify manatees from endangered to threatened. We think that's premature. 
although we certainly maintain that as a goal. And some of those things that I just mentioned, such as the 766 manatees dying in 2010, another 830 dying in 2013, mm -hmm. are, are things that have occurred since the time that the agency has included, they have not yet included those high mortality events within their modeling and projections as far as how the risks and threats to the population are. And so that's one of the reasons we think it's premature to be reclassifying them from endangered to threatened at mm -hmm. this time. And what would that reclassification do from a practical standpoint? It's a really complicated answer. Many people would tell you it's not going to do much because there's still quite strong protections for threatened species uh, under the Endangered Species Act. And that is true on paper. The reality is that there are already organizations that don't like speed zones being put in place to protect manatees. They don't like restrictions on development of waterfront activities and so forth. They're already proposing even legislation as we speak to undermine the state protections for manatees, remove the protection zones from them, make it easier for people to pump more water from the aquifer, for example, and do a number of things. So on the face of it, the answer might be it shouldn't mean there's going to be less protections, but we know as a practical application of how things work and the politics that get involved that there will be a rollback in protections at a time when many of those risks and threats are actually increasing. What can individuals do and what are you doing with Save the Manatee Club to uh, influence this process? Well, we're, we're presently within a 90-day period when the public can make comments and express their opinions to the Fish and Wildlife Service, including giving them very specific scientific information as well as what, you know, someone's opinion might be. So we're going to be doing again, as we've done before, uh, developing a quite extensive, elaborate response as to why we don't believe that it's time yet to celebrate their reclassification. I would want your listeners to know that the population had been improving from the time that they were first listed back with the original Endangered Species Act, but we've now hit some pretty big stumbles. And so what we thought maybe in 2009 might be a time to begin to look at a celebration, we know now that it's far from that. So if folks want to go to our website, that's a good way to help them see what we're doing and also how they can get involved, and that's savethemanatee.org. And there's a wealth of information on that website. And I also learned maybe you can tell us a little bit about the Jimmy Buffett connection. Yes. Uh, back in 1981, Jimmy Buffett actually was uh, uh, approached by our governor at the time, Governor Graham, and uh, he took his daughters backstage at a concert and Jimmy asked the governor, you know, what, hey, I'm concerned about manatees. What more can we do? Uh, they got together, and from that, there was the governor appointed to save the manatee committee. I happened to already be working with manatees at the time, so they also approached me to help as the first scientific advisor. And so for, the, for many, many years, I served as a volunteer for Save the Manatee Club, and ultimately when I retired from the state of Florida where I ran the state's marine protected species programs, I did come on board with Save the Manatee Club as uh, the executive director. Now, about a year ago, I saw a news report about a woman trying to swim or ride on a manatee. That's obviously a no-no. Yeah, she was actually trying to ride it, and it was in the fairly shallow water 
it's unusual that someone even would be in a position to be able to try to do that. This was a female manatee that was in an estrus condition, and she had actually gone to very shallow water to try to elude some of the male suitors at the time, mm-hmm. which can often sometimes happen up to two weeks. And but So at that point in time, while she was trying to get away from the other males because she wasn't quite receptive yet, the woman got on, held on, even though people told her, please don't do that. She kind of continued to do it. And so she did get some community service out of that one. Yeah. And how about the scuba and the snorkelers? Are they, uh, are they bothering the manatees? For a very long time, there, was, there had been activities in Kings Bay and Crystal River area where people could swim and if they were very careful and not to harass the manatees and chase them away and so forth. And in fact, we had established a number of sanctuaries for the manatees to be there. And then you could have with responsible swimming uh, in the area, you could observe manatees up close as long as they had plenty of places to go if they didn't want to be around the divers. Unfortunately, that has boomed into 100,000-plus people coming. Oh, my goodness. And the agencies responsible have not kept up with the sanctuary areas. So it's become quite controversial of late, and we're trying to not to stop the ability to swim with them in certain circumstances, but making sure there's a sanctuary for every manatee that wants to be in it. And then those that might want to choose to be out where the swimmers are, then that's one way to do it. But we, we really encourage people to come and see them and observe them in their natural habitat and not disturb them. Pat Rose, Executive Director of Save the Manatee Club. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us here on Animals Today. And we'll look forward to seeing how this progresses. Thank you, Peter. Want to slow down the effects of aging? A new article in the Journal of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons suggests that being physically active may significantly improve your overall health, especially the health of your bones and joints, and can even minimize or delay the effects of aging. Dr. Brian Vopat, an orthopedic surgeon in Providence, Rhode Island, explains. We're seeing an increasing amount of evidence that physical activity can help slow down the age-related decline in our musculoskeletal system. A lot of the deterioration we are seeing with aging can be attributed to a more sedentary lifestyle instead of aging itself. For those age 65 and older, it's critically important that combined exercise regimens of resistance, endurance, flexibility, and balance training be individualized according to their level of conditioning and ability. The exercises must be instituted gradually and safely, particularly for seniors and previously underactive adults. To learn more, visit anationinmotion.org. That's anationinmotion.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Boy, we've got more at Pet Products, our favorite ones of the year to share with you. Some of these I saw uh, demoed at the show in Vegas, and some of them have been sent to us, actually most of them that I was interested in, and others have been sent to us to demo, and we've got our crew of dogs and cats working hard, filling in their scorecards, telling us what they like and don't like, or are neutral to. Sometimes that happens. Laura, you got something? Yes. So we've spoken many times, Peter, on the show about disaster preparedness for your companion animals. If a disaster strikes, what will happen to your pet? Do you have a plan in place? 
If not, make a plan now and prepare a disaster kit for your pet or pets. You'd have to be living under a rock to not know that this year alone, there's been several severe storms that have wreaked havoc across the U.S. We know that leaving pets out of evacuation plans can put pets, you, the guardians, as well as the first responders in danger. And if I had to say one thing about animals and natural disasters, it would be never ever leave your pets behind during a disaster. Even if you think you created a safe place for them in or around your home, pets left behind during a disaster are likely to be injured, lost, or killed. This is your responsibility as a pet owner to prepare an emergency plan for your family, including your pet, in the event of a natural disaster. And if you truly care and love all your family members, including your four-legged ones, you gotta plan to keep them safe during an emergency now. And if you need guidance on doing this, you could check out my interview with Jeff Dorson with the Humane Society of Louisiana. That was on September 2nd. That, along with all our previously broadcast shows, are on our blog site at animalstodayradio.com. Okay, Peter, this being a good segue into the next product I want to talk about, and that is the Pet Safe Disposable litter box. Mm. As the name implies, this is a litter box, which is disposable. And I think this is a great thing to have as part of your disaster preparedness kit for your feline friend. It's made of durable, corrugated cardboard. The compact litter box easily pops up and folds back down for travel convenience. The box comes with a bag of crystal litter, which absorbs urine and dried solid waste for five times better odor control than clumping clay litters. The protective coating on the box protects against leaks. And I think this is a great thing to add to your emergency kit because it's a convenient potty solution for your cat on the move. And I put one together. It comes in a little flat pack and it does pop up pretty easily. It also comes with a bunch of cardboard scoopers that are stiff and it'll help you keep it nice and tidy. And, you know, I agree with you, Lori. You don't see this sort of product on many disaster preparedness lists for pets. So add this one. What do you have there, Peter? Okay, well, Lori, you know, one of my haha pet peeves is kitty drinking fountains. Because in our household, I am the person who's responsible largely for cleaning them. And like it or not, you need to not only refill the water, but the vessel gets slimy or it gets scaly and you need to scrub it and keep it nice and clean. So uh, however it's configured, whether it's uh, squirting out or going down a little ramp or just bubbling, Peter is in charge of keeping them clean. And some of them are hard to keep clean. Some are easier. Tell those folks tuning in right now why we like the fountains for cats. Well, you know, cats have a tendency to get dehydrated and you want to encourage them to drink and uh, you want to keep the water nice and fresh. You want to, there are all sorts of tips that are out there for encouraging your cat to stay hydrated, but on all of the lists is to give them a fountain so they really get a nice uh, fresh taste of water. And so we had the opportunity to test one of them along with two of our cats. It is also from the company PetSafe. It's called the Drinkwell, and the style is called the Seascape Pet Fountain. And it's a uh, it's about a, a foot by 10 inches uh, by 6 inches. It's made of ceramic, so it's washable. You can disassemble it and put the main parts in the dishwasher there's a little motor and then the neat thing is it pumps the water through the center of a sphere and then the water bubbles down the edges of the sphere and the cats just lick this sheet of water and it is mesmerizing they went right to it and even one of the cats that's a little 
little skittish, little scaredy cat after about two minutes. And he watched his brother drink out of it. And he was there just slurping away. And I just love the design of this because I've cleaned it. It's very easy to clean. Like I said, the motor is quiet and the cats can either drink right out of the little bubbling part of the water that's coming up through the center of it or along the edge or in the basin. So that's the uh, drink well from PetSafe. I love it. Yes, we do love our design, but I just want to mention they make a variety of styles. That's right. Well, Laura, you know, a dog needs a good ball. And so one of our favorite lines comes from Planet Dog, and they've got two that we really like called the Luna and the Soul. And these are hollow rubberized uh, spheres. They've got two little holes so they can drain water. They don't sink. And they just must have the greatest feel of for a dog to put in his mouth because it's really hard to get them out of a dog's mouth once once they got it, right? And they are very nice uh, quality. They come, like many of their products, with a peppermint scent, so the dogs really can tell that the box has arrived with their balls. They just love these. The unopened box. They know those balls are in there. Yes, and we need to keep them out of reach until we're ready to open it up. Right. And Peter, they have a great bounce, too. Oh, yes. So if we're playing, say, on the grass, you throw the ball in the distance, and it'll bounce once or twice off the grass nicely, and the Dogs can leap for them and grab them in the air, and it makes it very artistic and athletic and fun for us to to play, right? And the other neat thing is with these balls, maybe because of the little holes in them, the dogs can hear where the ball is going even when the ball is behind them. They can sort of sense where it's going and adjust their direction so they can turn their heads and just grab it. It's really uncanny. Like little receivers. Yeah, like a little football receiver. (laughs) Just know where to be, turn your mouth, and there's the ball. It's really amazing. Yeah. Okay, that's Planet Dog. Thanks, Planet Dog. And Peter, what's that bottle you have over there? It's dog shampoo. Oh, it says, I love Pet Head on it. And that's right. The brand is called Pet Head, and it comes from the company of animals. They have a line of dog shampoos. The one we have right in front of us is an itch shampoo called Life's an Itch. And it's supposed to soothe the skin and relieve irritations. It's got oatmeal and aloe vera plus tea tree oil, which is like a magical little stuff there, and other uh, ingredients. Our tester had a light scent of watermelon, and we did try this out. And what was our impression of this? I think it was quite good. It was certainly luxurious, and it was not like overly soapy, like there was a lot of detergent in it. It was like a medium lather, not too harsh, and uh, creamy almost. And it really left the dogs with a nice uh, feeling on their coats. I think they're going to like it. Do you think they notice a difference between the shampoo and other shampoos? Well, when we're done, they do like to run around the backyard no matter what we use like crazy. Uh, I like it. I think they'll like it. I do too. Okay, so that's Pethead. There's a whole line of different shampoos. They're really cute. The cap is in the shape of a little dog bone. It's always a chore to try to wash our dogs. They just want to run away from us, don't they? They do want to run away. We did figure out something this year in the heat by doing them outside with a hose. That was easier than wrestling them into our shower, but eventually it'll get too cool and we'll have to go back in there. And then you could just tell they feel so wonderful after the bath. They're so happy. Oh my God. I know. It's like torture and then they're happy. I know. I know. know? Four minutes of torture and then, okay. Okay. This is Dr. Peter Spiegel. And this is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other being sharing our planet, the animals. 